Book One, Chapter Four, Part Three of History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One, by Henry Charles Lee. Book One, Chapter Four Establishment of the Inquisition, Part Three. As novices, it would seem that the zeal of the inquisitors had plunged them into the business of arresting and trying suspects without resorting to the preliminary device which had been found useful in the earliest operations of the holy office, the term of grace. This was a period, longer or shorter according to the discretion of the inquisitors, during which those who felt themselves guilty could come forward and confess when they would be reconciled to the church and subjected to penance, pecuniary and otherwise, severe enough but preferable to the stake. One of the conditions was that of stating all that they knew of other heretics and apostates, which proved an exceedingly fruitful source of information, as, under the general terror, there was little hesitation in denouncing not only friends and acquaintances, but the nearest and dearest kindred, parents and children and brothers and sisters. No better means of detecting the hidden ramifications of Judaism could be devised, and, towards the middle of the year 1481, the inquisitors adopted it. The mercy thus promised was scanty, as we shall see hereafter when we come to consider the subject, but it brought in vast numbers, and autos de fe were organized in which they were paraded as penitents, no less than 1,500 being exhibited in one of these solemnities it can readily be conceived how soon the inquisitors were in possession of information inculpating conversos in every corner of the land. It was freely asserted that they were all in reality Jews who were waiting for God to lead them out of the worse-than-Egyptian bondage in which they were held by the Christians. Thus was demonstrated not only the necessity of the Inquisition, but of its extension throughout Spain. The evil was so great, and its immediate repression too important, for the work to be entrusted to the two friars laboring so zealously in Seville. Permission had been obtained only for the appointment of three, and application was made to Sixtus IV for additional powers. On this occasion he did not as before allow the commissions to be granted in the name of the sovereigns, but issued them direct to those nominated to him by them whereby the inquisitors held their faculties immediately from the Holy See. Thus, by a brief of February 11, 1482, he commissioned seven, Pedro Ocaño, Pedro Martinez de Barrio, Alfonso de San Cebriano, Rodrigo Segarra, Tomas de Torquemada, and Bernardo Santa Maria, all Dominicans. Still more were required, of whose appointments we have no definite knowledge, to man the tribunals which were speedily formed at Ciudad Real, Cordova, Jaén, and possibly at Segovia. The one at Ciudad Real was intended for the great archiepiscopal province of Toledo, to which city it was transferred in 1485. The reason why it was first established at the former place may perhaps be that the warlike Archbishop Alonso Carrulo whether through zeal for the faith or in order to assert his episcopal jurisdiction over heresy and prevent the intrusion of the papal inquisitors, had appointed before his death, July 1, 1482, a certain Dr. Tomas as inquisitor in Toledo. 
to what extent the latter performed his functions we have no means of knowing the only trace of his activity being the production and incorporation in the records of subsequent trials by the inquisition of ciudad real of evidence taken by him be this as it may the inquisition of ciudad real was not organized until the latter half of fourteen eighty three it commenced by issuing an edict of grace for thirty days at the expiration of which it extended the time for another thirty days meanwhile it was busily employed throughout october and november in making a general inquest and taking testimony from all who would come forward to give evidence in the resultant trials the names of some of the witnesses appear with suspicious frequency and the nature of their reckless general assertions without personal knowledge shows how flimsy was much of the evidence on which prosecutions were based that the inquest was thorough and that every one who knew anything damaging to a converso was brought up to state it may be assumed from the trial of sancho de ciudad in which the evidence of no less than thirty-four witnesses was recorded some of them testifying to incidents happening twenty years previous much of this moreover indicates the careless security in which the conversos had lived and allowed their jewish practices to be known to christian servants and acquaintances with whom they were in constant intercourse the first public manifestation of results seems to have been an auto de fe held november sixteenth in the church of san pedro for the reconciliation of penitents who had come forward during the term of grace soon after this the trials of those implicated commenced and were prosecuted with such vigor that on february sixth fourteen eighty four an auto de fe was held in which four persons were burnt followed on the twenty-third and twenty-fourth of the same month by an imposing solemnity involving the concremation of thirty living men and women and the bones and effigies of forty who were dead or fugitives in its two years of existence the tribunal of ciudad real burned fifty-two obstinate heretics condemned two hundred and twenty fugitives and reconciled one hundred and eighty-three penitents in fourteen eighty five the tribunal of ciudad real was transferred to the city of toledo where the conversos were very numerous and wealthy they organized a plot to raise a tumult and dispatched the inquisitors during the procession of corpus christi june second but as in the case of seville it was betrayed and six of the conspirators were hanged after which we hear of no further trouble there those who were first arrested confessed that the design extended to seizing the city gates and cathedral tower and holding the place against the sovereigns the inquisitor pedro diaz had preached the first sermon on may twenty fourth and after the defeat of the conspiracy the tribunal entered vigorously on its functions the customary term of grace of forty days was proclaimed and after some delay we are told that many applied for reconciliation rather through fear of concremation than through good will after the expiration of the forty days letters of excommunication were published against all cognizant of heresy who should not denounce it within sixty days a term subsequently extended by thirty more another very effectual expedient was adopted by summoning the jewish rabbis and requiring them under penalty of life and property to place a major excommunication on their synagogues and not remove it until all the members should have revealed everything within their knowledge respecting judaizing christians 
this was only perfecting a device that had already been employed elsewhere. In 1484, by a cedula of December 10th, Ferdinand had ordered the magistrates of all the principal towns in Aragon to compel, by all methods recognized in law, the rabbis and sacristans of the synagogues and such other Jews as might be named, to tell the truth as to all that might be asked of them, and in Seville we are told that a prominent Jew, Judah ibn Verga, expatriated himself to avoid compliance with a similar demand. The quality of the evidence obtained by such means may be estimated from the fact that when, in the assembly of Valladolid, in 1488, Ferdinand and Isabella investigated the affairs of the Inquisition, it was found that many Jews testified falsely against conversos in order to encompass their ruin, for which some of those against which this was proved were lapidated in Toledo. Whether true or false, the Toledan Inquisition reaped by these methods a plentiful harvest of important revelations. It is easy, in fact, to imagine the terror pervading the converso community and the eagerness with which the unfortunates would come forward to denounce themselves and their kindred and friends, especially when, after the expiration of the ninety days, arrests began and quickly followed each other. The penitents were allowed to accumulate, and at the first auto de fe, held February 12, 1486, only those of seven parishes, San Vicente, San Nicolas, San Juan de la Leche, Santa Justa, San Miguel, San Juste, and San Lorenzo, were summoned to appear. These amounted to seven hundred and fifty of both sexes, comprising many of the principal citizens and persons of quality. The ceremony was painful and humiliating. Bareheaded and barefooted, except that, in consideration of the intense cold, they were allowed to wear soles, carrying unlighted candles and surrounded by a howling mob which had gathered from all the country around, they were marched in procession through the city to the cathedral, at the portal of which stood two priests, who marked them on the forehead as they entered with the sign of the cross, saying, Receive the sign of the cross which you have denied and lost. When inside, they were called one by one before the inquisitors, while a statement of their misdeeds was read. They were fined in one-fifth of all their property for the war with the Moors. They were subjected to lifelong incapacity to hold office, or to pursue honorable avocations, or to wear other than the coarsest vestments unadorned, under pain of burning for relapse, and they were required to march in procession on six Fridays, bareheaded and barefooted, disciplining themselves with hempen cords. The loving mother church could not welcome back to her bosom her erring children without a sharp and wholesome warning nor did she relax her vigilance, for this perilous process of confession and reconciliation was so devised as to furnish many subsequent victims to the stake, as we shall see hereafter. The second auto was held on April 2, 1486, where nine hundred penitents appeared from the parishes of San Roman, San Salvador, San Cristobal, San Soil, San Andres, and San Pedro. The third auto, on June 11th, consisted of some 750 from Santa Olaya, San Tomas, San Martin, and San Antolin. The city being thus disposed of, the various archidiaconates of the district were taken in order. That of Toledo furnished 900 penitents on December 10th, 
when we are told that they suffered greatly from the cold. On January 15, 1487, there were about 700 from the Archidiaconate of Alcaraz, and on March 10th from those of Talavera, Madrid, and Guadalajara, about 1,200, some of whom were condemned in addition to wear the San Benito for life. While the more or less voluntary penitents were thus treated, there were numerous autos de fe celebrated of a more serious character, in which there were a good many burnings, including not a few frailes and ecclesiastical dignitaries, as well as cases of fugitives and of the dead, who were burned in effigy and their estates confiscated. In 1485, a temporary tribunal was set up at Guadalupe, where Ferdinand and Isabella appointed as inquisitor, under what papal authority does not appear, Fray Nuno de Arevalo, prior of the Heronomite convent there. Apparently, to guide his inexperience, Dr. Francisco de la Fuente was transferred from Ciudad Real, and, with another colleague, the licentiate Pedro Sanchez de la Calancha, they purified the place of heresy with so much vigor that, within a year, they held in the cemetery before the doors of the monastery seven autos de fe in which were burnt a heretic monk, fifty-two Judaizers, forty-eight dead bodies, and twenty-five effigies of fugitives, while sixteen were condemned to perpetual imprisonment, and innumerable others were sent to the galleys or penanced with the San Benito for life. These energetic proceedings do not appear to have made good Christians of those who were spared, for, July 13, 1500, Inquisitor General Desa ordered all the conversos of Guadalupe to leave the district and not to return. The same year, 1485, saw a tribunal assigned to Valladolid, but it must have met with effective resistance, for in September 1488, Ferdinand and Isabella were obliged to visit the city in order to get it into working condition. It forthwith commenced operations by arresting some prominent citizens, and on June 19, 1489, the first auto de fe was held in which eighteen persons were burnt alive and the bones of four dead heretics. Still, the existence of this tribunal would seem to have long remained uncertain, for, as late as December 24, 1498, we find Isabella writing to a new appointee that she and the Inquisitor-General have agreed that the Inquisition must be placed there, and ordering him to prepare to undertake it, and then on January 22, 1501, telling Inquisitor-General Desa that she approves of its lodgment in the house of Diego de la Baeza, where it is to remain for the present. She adds that she and Ferdinand have written to the Count of Cabra, to see that for the future the inquisitors are well treated. Permanent tribunals were also established in Urena and Mercia, of the early records of all of which we know little. In 1490 a temporary one was organized in Avila by Torquemada, apparently for the purpose of trying those accused of the murder of the Santo Nino de la Guardia. It continued active until 1500, and during these ten years there were hung in the church the insignias and manietas of seventy-five victims burnt alive, of twenty-six dead, and of one fugitive, besides the sanbenitos of seventy-one reconciled penitents. The various provinces of Castile thus became provided with the machinery requisite for the extermination of heresy, and at an early period in its development it was seen that, 
for the enormous work before it, some more compact and centralized organization was desirable than had hitherto been devised. The Inquisition which had been so effective in the 13th and 14th centuries was scattered over Europe. Its judges were appointed by the Dominican or Franciscan provincials, using a course of procedure and obeying instructions which emanated from the Holy See. The papacy was the only link between them. The individual inquisitors were to a great extent independent. They were not subjected to visitation or inspection, and it was, if not impossible, a matter of difficulty to call them to account for the manner in which they might discharge their functions. Such was not the conception of Ferdinand and Isabella, who intended the Spanish Inquisition to be a national institution, strongly organized, and owing obedience to the crown much more than to the Holy See. The measures which they adopted with this object were conceived with their customary sagacity, and were carried out with their usual vigor and success. At this period they were earnestly engaged in reorganizing the institutions of Castile, centralizing the administration, and reducing to order the chaos resulting from the virtual anarchy of the preceding reigns. In effecting this, they apportioned, in 1480, with the consent of the Cortes of Toledo, the affairs of government among four royal councils, that of administration and justice, known as the Consejo Real de Castilla, that of finance, or Consejo de Hacienda, the Consejo de Estado, and the Consejo de Aragón, to which was added a special one for the hermandades. These met daily in the palace for the dispatch of business, and their effect in making the royal power felt in every corner of the land, and in giving vigor and unity to the management of the state, soon proved the practical value of the device. The Inquisition was fast looming up as an affair of state of the first importance, while yet it could scarce be regarded as falling within the scope of either of the four councils. The sovereigns were too jealous of papal interference to allow it to drift aimlessly, subject to directions from Rome, and their uniform policy required that it should be kept as much as possible under the royal superintendence. That a fifth council should be created for the purpose was a natural expedient, for which the assent of Sixtus IV was readily obtained, when it was organized in 1483 under the name of Consejo de la Suprema y General Inquisición, a title conveniently abbreviated to La Suprema, with jurisdiction over all matters connected with the faith. To secure due subordination and discipline over the whole body, it was requisite that the president of this council should have full control of appointment and dismissal of the individual inquisitors, who, as exercising power delegated directly from the Pope, might otherwise regard with contempt the authority of one who was also merely a delegate. It thus became necessary to create a new office, unknown to the older Inquisition, an Inquisitor-General, who should preside over the deliberations of the Council. The office evidently was one which would be of immense weight, and the future of the institution depended greatly on the character of its first chief. By the advice of the Cardinal Archbishop of Toledo, Pero González de Mendoza, the royal choice fell on Tomás de Torquemada, the confessor of the sovereigns, who was one of the seven inquisitors commissioned by the papal letter of February 11, 1482. The other members of the council were Alonso Carrillo, Bishop of Masara, Sicily, 
and two doctors of laws, Sancho Velasco de Cuellar and Ponce de Valencia. The exact date of Torquemada's appointment is not known, as the papal brief conferring it has not been found, but, as Sixtus created him inquisitor of Aragon, Catalonia, and Valencia, by letters of October 17, 1483, his commission as inquisitor-general of Castile was somewhat antecedent. The selection of Torquemada justified the wisdom of the sovereigns. Full of pitiless zeal, he developed the nascent institution with unwearied assiduity. Rigid and unbending, he would listen to no compromise of what he deemed to be his duty, and in his fear he personified the union of the spiritual and temporal swords, which was the ideal of all true churchmen. Under his guidance, the Inquisition rapidly took shape and extended its organization throughout Spain, and was untiring and remorseless in the pursuit and punishment of the apostates. His labors won him ample praise from successive popes. Already, in 1484, Sixtus IV wrote to him that Cardinal Borgia had warmly eulogized him for his success in prosecuting the good work throughout Castile and Leon, adding, quote, We have heard this with the greatest pleasure, and rejoice exceedingly that you, who are furnished with both doctrine and authority, have directed your zeal to these matters which contribute to the praise of God and the utility of the Orthodox faith. We commend you in the Lord, and exhort you, cherished son, to persevere with tireless zeal in aiding and promoting the cause of the faith, by doing which, as we are assured you will, you will win our special favor. Twelve years later, Cardinal Borgia, then Pope under the name of Alexander the Sixth, assures him in 1496 that he cherishes him in the very bowels of affection for his immense labors in the exaltation of the faith. If we cannot wholly attribute to him the spirit of ruthless fanaticism which animated the Inquisition, he at least deserves the credit of stimulating and rendering it efficient in its work by organizing it and by directing it with dauntless courage against the suspect, however high-placed, until the shadow of the holy office covered the land and no one was so hardy as not to tremble at its name. The temper in which he discharged his duties, and the absolute and irresponsible control which he exercised over the subordinate tribunals, can be fitly estimated from a single instance. There was a fully organized inquisition at Medina, with three inquisitors, an assessor, a fiscal, and other officials, assisted by the abbot of Medina as ordinary. They reconciled some culprits and burnt others, apparently without referring the cases to him but when they found reason to acquit some prisoners, they deemed it best to transport the papers to him for confirmation. He demurred at this mercy, and told the tribunal to try the accused again, when the licentiate Vialpando should be there as a visitador. Some months after Vialpando came there, the cases were reviewed, the prisoners were tortured, two of them were reconciled, and the rest acquitted, the sentences being duly published as final. Torquemada, on learning this, was incensed and declared that he would burn them all. He had them arrested again and sent to Valladolid to be tried outside of their district, where his threat was doubtless carried into effect. When such was the spirit infused in the organization at the beginning, we need not wonder that verdicts of acquittal were infrequent in the records of its development. 
yet withal Torquemada's zeal could not wholly extinguish worldliness. We are told, indeed, that he refused the archbishopric of Seville, that he wore the humble Dominican habit, that he never tasted flesh, nor wore linen in his garments, nor used it on his bed, and that he refused to give a marriage portion to his indigent sister, whom he would only assist to enter the order of Beatas of St. Dominic. Still, his asceticism did not prevent him from living in palaces surrounded by a princely retinue of two hundred and fifty armed familiars and fifty horsemen. Nor was his persecuting career purely disinterested. Though the rule of his Dominican order forbade individual ownership of property, and, through his position as supreme judge, should have dictated the utmost reserve in regard to the financial results of persecution, he had no hesitation in accumulating large sums from the pecuniary penances inflicted by his subordinates on the heretics who spontaneously returned to the faith. It is true that the standards of the age were so low that he made no secret of this, and it is also true that he lavished them on the splendid monastery of St. Thomas Aquinas, which he built at Avila, on enlarging that of Santa Cruz at Segovia, of which he was prior, and on various structures in his native town of Torquemada. Yet amid the ostentation of his expenditure, he lived in perpetual fear, and at his table he always used the horn of a unicorn, which was a sovereign preservative against poison. As delegated powers were held to expire with the death of the grantor, unless otherwise expressly defined, Torquemada's commission required renewal on the decease of Sixtus IV. Ferdinand and Isabella asked that the new one should not be limited to the life of the Pope, but that the power should continue, not only during Torquemada's life, but until the appointment of his successor. The request was not granted, and, when Innocent VIII, by a brief of February 3, 1485, recommissioned Torquemada, it was in the ordinary form. This apparently was not satisfactory, but the Pope was not willing thus to lose all control of the Spanish Inquisition, and a compromise seems to have been reached, for when, February 6, 1486, Torquemada was appointed Inquisitor General of Barcelona, and his commission for Spain was renewed, on March 24th of the same year, it was drawn to continue at the good pleasure of the Pope and of the Holy See, which, without abnegating papal control, rendered renewals unnecessary. This formula was abandoned in the commissions of Torquemada's immediate successors, but was subsequently resumed and continued to be employed through the following centuries. End of Book 1, Chapter 4, Part 3